Chapter Seven, Part One of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Seven, The Devil and All His Works, Part One. McGuire was a little washed-out kind of toil-bent hostler in the roundhouse, and he married old. How old? Nobody knew. Not even old Bill himself, fifty-something. Mrs. McGuire presented him with a son in due course, and the son's name was Patrick Burke McGuire. But the Hill Division, being both terse and graphic by nature and education, called him Noodles. Noodles wasn't even a pretty baby. Tommy Regan, who was roped in to line up at the baptismal font and act as godfather because old Bill was a boiler washer in the roundhouse, which was reason enough for the big-hearted master mechanic, said that Noodles was the ugliest and most forbidding-looking specimen of progeny he had ever seen outside a zoological garden. Of course, be it understood, Regan wasn't a family man, and godfathering wasn't a job in Regan's line. So when he got outside the church and the perspiration had stopped trickling nervously down the small of his back, and he'd got a piece of black strap clamped firmly home between his teeth, he told old Bill, by way of a grim sort of revenge for the unhappy position his good nature had led him into, that the offspring was the dead spit of its father, and he congratulated Noodles. The irony, of course, was lost. The boiler washer walked on air for a week. He told the roundhouse what Regan had said, and the roundhouse laughed. Bill thought the roundhouse thought he was lying, but that didn't dampen his spirits any. It wasn't everybody could get the master mechanic of the division to stand up with their kids. Everybody was happy, except Noodles. Noodles, just about then, developed colic. Noodles got over the colic, got over the measles, the mumps, the whooping cough, and the scarlet fever. That may not have been the order of their coming or their going, but he got over them all. And when he was twelve, he got over the smallpox. But he never got over his ugliness. The smallpox kind of put a stop order on any lurking tendency there might have been in that direction. Also, when he was twelve, he got over all the schooling the boiler washer's limited means would span, which wasn't a university course, and he started in railroading as a call boy. There was nothing organically bad about Noodles, except his exterior, which wasn't his fault. One can't be blamed for hair of a mottled red, ubiquitous freckles wherever the smallpox had left room for them, no particular colored eyes, a little round knob of uptilted nose, and a mouth that made even the callous duchy at the lunch counter feel a little mean inwardly when he compared it with the mathematically cut slab of contract pie eight slabs to the pie plate, and so much so that he went to the extent of no, he never gave Noodles an extra piece, but he went to the extent of surreptitiously pocketing Noodles' nickel as though he were obtaining money under false pretenses, which was a good deal for Dutchy to do, and just shows. There was nothing organically bad about Noodles, not a thing. Noodles' troubles, and they came thick and fast with the inauguration of his railroad career, lay in quite another direction his irrepressible tendency to practical jokes, coupled with a lack of the sense of the general fitness of things, consequences, and results, 
and an absence of even a bowing acquaintance with responsibility that was appalling. The first night Noodles went on duty as call boy, armed with a nickel thriller, that being only half the price of a regular dime novel, and visions of the presidency of the road being offered him before he was much older, Spence was sitting in on the early night trick. There was a lot of stuff moving through the mountains that night, and the train sheet was heavy, and even Spence, counted one of the best dispatchers that ever held down a key on the Hill Division, was hard put to it both to keep his crowding sections from treading on each other's heels, and to jockey the east and west bounds past each other without letting their pilots get tangled up head-on. It was no night and no place for foolishness. A dispatcher's office never is, for that matter. Noodles curled himself up in a chair behind the dispatcher and started in on the thriller. His first call was for the cruise of number 72, the local freight east at 8.35, and there was nothing to do until then unless Spence should happen to want him for something. The thriller was quite up to the mark, even thriller than usual, but Noodles left the hero at the end of the first chapter securely bound to the mill-wheel, with the villain rushing to open the gate in the dam, and his eyes strayed around the room. It wasn't altogether the novelty of his surroundings. No phase of railroading was altogether a novelty to any big-cloud youngster. There was just a sort of newness in his own position that interfered with any protracted or serious effort along literary lines. From a circuit of the room his eyes went to the fly-specked green-shaded lamp on the dispatcher's table, then from the lamp to the dispatcher's back, and fixed on the dispatcher's back. His eyes held there quite a long time. Then his fingers went stealthily to the lapel of his coat. Spence had a habit, when hurried or anxious, of half-rising from his chair, as though to give emphasis to his orders every time he touched the key. Spence was both hurried and anxious that night, and the key was busy. In the somewhat dim light, Spence, to Noodle's fancy, assumed the aspect of an animated jumping-jack. Deftly, through long experience, Noodles coiled his pin with a wicked upshoot to the center of attack, cautiously lowered his own chair, which had been tilted back against the wall, to the more stable position of four legs on the floor, leaned forward, and laid the pin at a strategic point on the seat of Spence's chair. Two minutes later, kicked bodily down the stairs, Noodles was surveying the big cloud yards by moonlight from the perspective of the station platform. Noodles' career as a call boy had been brief, and it was ended. Old Bill, the boiler-washer, came to the rescue. He explained to Regan who the godfather of the boy was, and what bearing that had on the case, and how he'd larrupt the boy for what he'd done, and how the boy hadn't meant anything by it, and could the boy have another chance. Regan said, yes, and it said it shortly, more because he was busy at the time and wanted to get rid of old Bill than from any predisposition toward noodles. Noodles wasn't predisposing anyway, you looked at him, and Regan had a good look at his godson now for about the first time since he'd sponsored him, and he didn't like Noodles' looks particularly. But Regan, not taking too serious a view of the matter, said yes, and put Noodles at work over in the roundhouse under the eye of his father. Here, for a month, in one way or another, Noodles succeeded in making things lively, 
and himself cordially disliked by about everybody in the shops, the roundhouse, and the big cloud yards generally. And there was a hint or two thrown out that reached Regan's ears that old Bill had known what he was doing when he got one of the big fellows as godfather for as ugly a blasted little nuisance as the Hill Division had known for many a long day. Regan got to scowling every time he saw Noodle's unhandsome countenance, and he took pains on more than one occasion to give a bit of blunt advice to both Noodle's and Noodle's father, which the former received somewhat ungraciously, and the latter with trepidation. And then one night, as it grew dark, just before six o'clock, while Bill and the Turner and the Wipers were washing up and trying to put in the time before the whistle blew, Noodles dropped into the turntable pit and wedged the turntable bearings with iron wedgings. Half an hour later, when the night crew came to swing it for the 1016, blowing hard from a full head of steam and ready to go out and couple on to number one for the westbound run, they couldn't move it. It took them a few minutes before they could find out what the matter was, and another few to undo the matter when they did find out, and number one went out five minutes late. Nobody asked who did it. It wasn't necessary. They just said noodles, and waited to see what Noodles' godfather would do about it. They did not have long to wait. The limited five minutes late out of division and the delay up to the motive power department, which was Regan's department, would have been enough to bring the offender, whoever he might be, on the carpet with scant ceremony even if it had been an accident. Regan was boiling mad. Noodles didn't show up the next day. Deep in Noodles' consciousness was a feeling that his nickel thriller and a certain spot he knew up behind the butte, where many a pleasant afternoon had been passed when he should have been at school, was more conducive to peace and quietness than the center of the railroad activities. Also, Noodles ached bodily from his father's attentions. Old Bill, too, kept conveniently out of sight down in a pit somewhere every time the master mechanic showed his nose inside the roundhouse during the morning. But by afternoon, counting the edge of Regan's wrath to have worn smooth, he followed Regan out over the turntable after one of the master mechanic's visits. Regan, he blurted out anxiously, about the boy now. Well, snapped Regan, whirling about. The monosyllable was cold enough in its uncompromise to stagger the little ostler, and drive all thoughts of the carefully rehearsed oration he had prepared from his head. He scratched aimlessly at the half-circle of grey billy-goat beard under his chin, and blinked helplessly at the master mechanic. Noodles lacked much, and in Noodles was much to be desired, perhaps. But Noodles, for all that, had his place in the Irish heart that beat under the greasy jumper. "'He's the only one we've got, Regan,' stammered the harassed roundhouse man appealingly. "'It's a wonder, then, you've not holes in the knees of your overalls giving thanks for it,' declared Regan grimly. "'That's enough, Bill, and we've had enough of noodles. Keep him away from here.' "'Ah, sure now, Regan,' begged the little hostler piteously. "'Yes, don't mean it. The boy's all right, Regan. Tis but spirit he has. Uh, Regan, listen here now. I've larruped him good for what he's done, and twas no more than a joke.' "'A joke?' Regan choked, then brusquely. "'That'll do, Bill. I've said my last word, and I'm busy this afternoon. Noodles is out. For keeps.' "'Ah, Regan, listen here.' 
Noodle's father caught the master mechanic's arm as the latter turned away. Regan, sure, it's the boy's godfather, yes, are. The fat little master mechanic's face went suddenly red. This was the last straw. Noodle's godfather. Regan had been catching more whispers than he had liked lately, anent godfathers and godfathering. His eyes puckered up, and he wheeled on the boiler washer, but the hot words on the tip of his tongue died unborn. There was something in the dejected droop of the other's figure, something in the blue eyes growing watery with age, that made him change his mind. Old Bill wasn't a young man. As far as the big-hearted, good-natured master mechanic could remember, he remembered old Bill in the roundhouse. Always the same job, day after day, year after year. Boiler washing, tinkering around it, odd jobs, not much good at anything else. Church every Sunday in shiny black coat, and peaked-faced Mrs. McGuire in the same threadbare shiny black dress. Not that Regan ever went to church, but he used to see them going there. Church every Sunday. McGuire was long on church. And weekdays just boiler washing and tinkering around at odd jobs. A dollar sixty a day. Regan's pucker subsided, and he reached out his hand to the boiler washer's shoulder, and he grinned to kind of take the sting out of his words. Well, Bill, he said, as far as that goes, I renounce the honor. Renounce it? The boiler washer's eyes opened wide, and his face was strained as though he had not heard aright. Renounce it? It's an Irish Protestant, yes, our Reagan, the same as me and the missus, and did you not hear the words in the church? I did, admitted Regan, though I've forgotten what they were. It was well enough, no doubt, for the kid in swaddling clothes, but it's some time since then. Then, with finality, go back to your work, Bill. I can't talk to you any more this afternoon. Renounce it! The words reached Regan as he turned away and started across the tracks toward the platform, and in their tones was something akin to stunned awe that caused him to chuckle. Renounce it! And you said the word for an instant priest! Regan's chuckle, however, was not of long duration, either literally or metaphorically. During the rest of the afternoon, the boiler washer's words got to swinging through Regan's brain until they became an obsession, and somewhere down inside of him began to grow an uncomfortable foreboding that there might be something more to the godfathering business than he had imagined. He tackled Carlton about it before the whistle blew. Carlton, said he, walking into the super's office and picking up a ruler from the other's desk, don't laugh or I'll jam this ruler down your throat. If you can answer a straight question, answer it. Otherwise, let it go. What's a godfather, anyhow? Carlton grinned. You ought to know, Tommy, he said. I was running without a permit and off schedule at the time, and I, I was nervous, said Regan. What happened or, or what the goings-on were, I don't know. What is it? Carlton shook his head gravely. I'm afraid not, Tommy, he said. You're in the wrong shop. Information bureau's downstairs to the right of the ticket office. Thanks, said Regan. And that was all the help he got from Carlton, then. But that night over their usual game of Pedro in the super's office, it was a little different. Carlton, as he pulled the cards out of the desk drawer and tossed them on the table, pulled a small book from his pocket and tossed it to Regan. "'What's this?' inquired the master mechanic. "'It's not to your credit to ask. It's a prayer book. 
Carlton informed him. Be careful of it. I borrowed it. You didn't need to say so, said Regan softly. Page 208, suggested Carlton. See if that's what you were looking for, Tommy. Regan thumbed the leaves, found the place, and began to read, and a sickly sort of pallor began to spread over his face. "'You are his sureties that he will renounce the devil and all his works,' he mumbled weakly. "'Yes,' said Carlton cheerfully. "'That's some little responsibility there, you see. But don't skip the parenthesis. Get it all, Tommy, until he comes of age to take it upon himself.' Regan didn't say a word nor was the smile he essayed an enthusiastic success. He read the articles over again, word by word, pointing the lines with his pudgy forefinger. "'Well,' inquired Carlton, "'what do you make of the running orders, Tommy?' "'The devil and all his works.' It came away from Regan now with a rush from his overburdened soul. "'Do you mean to say that—that—' Regan choked a little. That, that I'm responsible for that brick-top monkey-faced kid? Until he comes of age, Carlton amplified pleasantly. Regan's Celtic temper rose. I'll see him hung first, he roared suddenly. Twas no more than to please Maguire that I stood up with the ugly imp. And maybe I said what's here, and maybe I didn't. But in any event, tis no more than a matter of form to be repeated, parrot fashion, and it means nothing. Oh, well, said the super, slyly. If you feel that way about it, don't let it bother you. It will not bother me, said Regan defiantly, with a scowl. But it did. Regan slept that night with an army corps of red-headed, pocketed, and freckled-faced little devils to plague his rest, and their name was Noodles. His thoughts were unpleasantly more on Noodles than his razor when he shaved the next morning, and the result was an unsightly gash across his chin, and when he made his first inspection of the roundhouse an hour later he was in a temper to be envied by no man. His irritability was not soothed by the sight of Maguire, who rose suddenly in front of him from an engine pit as he came in. "'Regan,' said the old fellow, "'about the boy!' "'Maguire,' said Regan in a low, fervent voice, "'you bother me about that again, and I'll fire you too.' "'Wait, Regan!' There was a quaver in the little ostler's voice, and he appeared to stand his ground only by the aid of some previously arrived at painful resolution that rose superior to nervousness. "'Wait, Regan. Maybe you'll not have to. I talked it over with the missus last night. I've worked well for yous, Regan, all these years. All these years, Regan. I've worked for yous here in the roundhouse, and I've worked well, though it's myself that says it.' "'That's nothing to do with it,' snapped the master mechanic. And maybe it has, and maybe it hasn't. The watery blue eyes sought the toes of their owner's grease-smeared, thickly patched brogans. I talked it over with the missus. Sure, sure now, Regan, just weren't thinking what you said, and just didn't mean what you said yesterday about renouncing the word you'd passed. You'll take it back, Regan. Take it back? I'll be damned if I do, said Regan earnestly. The little ostler's body stiffened, the watery blue eyes lifted and held steady on the master mechanic, and for the first time in his lowly life he raised a hand to his superior. Maguire pointed a forefinger, that shook a little, at Regan. "'Tis blasphemous you are, Regan,' he said in a thin voice. "'And tis no blasphemy, I mean. God forbid, for when I say yous'll be damned if yous don't. 
before a priest regan and in the church of god regan you swore for what you swore and tis the wrath of god regan you'll bring down on your head mind that regan fire me is it the little ostler's voice rose suddenly all these years i've worked well for yous regan but i'll work no more for a man as'll do a thing like that and the missus says the same poor we may be but respect for ourselves we have yous'll never fire me regan i fire meself i'm through this minute regan glared disdainfully have you been drinking maguire he inquired caustically noodle's fathers did not answer he brushed past the master mechanic, walked through the big engine doors, and halted just outside on the cinders. "'Tis forsworn yous are, Regan," he said heavily. "'Yous make light of it now, but the day'll come, Regan, for when yous'll find out tis no light matter. Tis the wrath of God, Regan'll pay yous for it. Yous can mark my words." Regan stared after the old man, his eyes puckered, his face a little red, stared after the bent form in the old worn overalls as it picked its way across the tracks, and gave vent to his feelings by expectorating a goodly stream of blackstrap juice savagely into the engine pit at his side. This did not help very much, and for the rest of the morning, while he inwardly anathematized Noodles, Noodles' father, and the whole Noodles' family collectively, he made things both uncomfortable and lively for those who were unfortunate enough to be within reach of his displeasure. "'The wrath of God,' communed Regan angrily. "'I always said Noodles took after his father both by disposition and looks. It'll be a long time before the old man gets another job. A long time!' And therein Regan was right. It was a long time. Quite a long time, measured by the elasticity of the boiler-washer's purse— which wasn't very elastic on the savings from a dollar sixty a day. Old Bill McGuire, perhaps, was the only one who hadn't got quite the proper angle on the rights he carried, which were worse than those of a mixed local when the rails were humming under a stress of through traffic and the dispatchers were biting their nails to the quick trying to take care of it. Not possibly that it would have made any difference to the little worn-out ostler if he had, for whether from principle, having deep-seated awe for the church and its tenants that forbade even a tacit endorsement of what he considered Regan's sacrilege, or because of the public slight put upon his family, the roundhouse hadn't failed to hear his first conversation with Regan, and hadn't failed to let him know that they had, or maybe from a mixture of the two. Maguire was beyond question in deadly earnest. But if old Bill hadn't got his signals right and was reading green and white when it should have been red, the rest of the Hill Division wasn't by any means colorblind. It was pretty generally understood that for several years back all that stood between McGuire and the scrap heap was Regan, not on account of any jolly business about godfather or godfathering, but because that was Regan's way. Old Bill puttered around the roundhouse on sufferance, thanks to Regan, and didn't know it, though everybody else did, barring patient little Mrs. McGuire and Noodles, who didn't count anyway. Nor did the little ostler even now pass the color test. Short-tongued, hard, grimy lot, just what their rough-and-ready life made them, they might have been, those railroaders of the Rockies, but their hearts were always right. 
In the yards, in the trainmaster's office, in the roadmaster's office, they pointed McGuire to the quiet times, to the extra crews laid off, to the spare men back to their old ratings, to the section gangs pared down to a minimum, and advised him to ask Regan for his job back again. They never told him he couldn't do a man's work any more. Ask, ask Regan, stuttered the old boiler washer, and the gray billy goat beard under his chin as he threw his head up, stuck out straight like a belligerent chevaux de free. Never! Mind that now! Never! Never! Till he takes back for what he said! Not if I starve for it! End of chapter 7, part 1